1: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. And by stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and have your postal carrier pick up the packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code CULTUREFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest. Fest. Are you there, God? It's me, Hollywood edition. It's Wednesday, April 2nd, 2014. On today's show, Noah, it's the Old Testament palooza from director Darren Aronofsky. And then Doll and M, it's the latest HBO meta-comedy starring Emily Mortimer as more or less Emily Mortimer herself. And finally, the great website Television Without Pity Goes Dark. Joining me today is Slate's deputy editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens hey Dana
2: hello Steven
1: guys I heard this crazy April Fool's like larky pull my leg fool me twice kind of joke today which is that last week when the show went totally dead totally dark nothing that they brought in Pesca Swansburg and some third guy I don't even know what
0: Jessica Winter
1: (laughs) named Jessica Winter and did the show without us which is just ridiculous because if that happened I mean, we're talking dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, the dead rising from the grave. I mean, right? Just insane.
0: I think it was like risky business. They were like running a brothel. There was a rager, you know. I think it was
2: like all about Eve and they're all out for our jobs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They can have them.
2: I I think we might be in trouble.
1: (laughs) But my word is that this is what made it completely absurd that they did a pretty good job.
2: Yeah, I heard it yesterday, and it's 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 quite funny, and I love Jessica's endorsement.
1: Oh, cool. All right. Well, anyway, welcome back, and thanks, of course, to the guys who subbed to us last week. All right. Well, moving on. Darren Arnaud. Wait, wait,
2: wait. Before we
0: move on, I, I have an announcement. More twins? <laughs> <laughs> God, no. Um, we, as I mentioned a couple weeks on the show, are doing a live podcast in Montreal. That's Canada. That is the Slate Podcast Empire's first international edition, aren't we, Cosmopolitan. I mean, I would have put the money on us being the first international show. Don't you think?
2: Yeah, not those philistines over at political.
0: No, those those isolationist homebodies. Anyway, we're clearly the ones who are most meant to be international, um, and we've got this live taping in Montreal at the Blue Metropolis Montreal International Literary Festival. So we'll be there, and a bunch of wonderful and fascinating authors will also be there. So if you've been looking for an excuse to hop to Montreal for a lovely weekend in one of Steve's favorite cities, you should book some tickets for our live show, which is on Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m., and also the evening before, we are going to be having a... Private Drinks Hour at Billy Coon, which is the bar Steve has touted many times on this show, one of his favorite watering holes in Montreal. We'll be there. We'll have a little area booked. We're looking forward to meeting and mingling with you, hearing what you guys think of the city, the other great speakers on the panels there that weekend. So yeah, we'll see you guys in
2: Montreal. Field trip. Yeah, Montreal better be all that you've cracked it up to be, Steve. I've never been there.
1: Oh my God, it's incredible. It's it's. France without the French people it's a what more could you ask for?
0: <laughs> the only story I've heard about Montreal is like a bachelor's party there that ended up with like doing cocaine with like hookers in a parking lot is that what's gonna happen to us <laughs>
1: <laughs> Every, that's that's known as Tuesday at Billy Coon
0: <laughs> Jesus all right we might be on over our heads
1: All right. Well, Darren Aronofsky is the director of such movies as Pi, Requiem for a Dream, and Black Swan. God, meanwhile, is the author of The Heavens and the Earth, All (laughs) Space, All Time as We Know Them, and by dictation to Moses, the Pentateuch, which includes within its book of Genesis the story of Noah. Now, thanks to the miracles of CGI, the miracles of the Old Testament can be brought together with A-list Hollywood directors and stars like Russell Crowe here plays the patriarch who receives the prophetic task of rebooting all humanity. Our family has been chosen for a great task. To save the innocent.
2: The innocent? The animals. Why are they innocent?
0: Because they still live as they did in the garden.
2: Yes. We need to save enough of them to start again.
1: But what of us? I guess we get to start again, too. In a new and better world. But first, we have to build.
2: The great flood is coming. The waters of the heavens will meet the waters of the Earth. We build a vessel to survive the storm.
1: All right, well, Dana, I'm dying to hear what you have to say about this movie. Whether your feelings about it were gusty, floody, you know, humanity eradicating, what exactly they were. But let me ask with a lead with an actual question, which is: Isn't Darren Aronofsky, whatever else is true about the film, isn't he with his hallucinatory style uh, the right guy to make such a movie?
2: He is and he isn't. I mean, he's certainly the right guy to ask the theological questions that this movie asks. And I was impressed to the degree to which it does ask theological questions. I'm still sorting out my feelings about it. Usually when we talk about a movie on the Gabfest, I've already reviewed it and sometimes done a spoiler special too and really thought it through this time because I was on vacation last week when this opened. I haven't. So I'm really just kind of still... Reacting to it in real time. I would say, on the whole, that this movie does not work. I don't think that it's good drama. I don't think it's particularly effective storytelling. It's got many ridiculable long stretches. But I was sort of impressed at its intellectual and philosophical ambitions, to tell you the truth. I mean, the way that Russell Crowe's character of Noah is drawn, the way he's written and the way Russell Crowe plays him is just so un-Hollywood biblical epic. And it's so, you know, it's sort of affirmation of the void. And we can get into sort of how that plays out in the movie. But even though this movie does end with the traditional rainbow and dove with an olive branch that the Noah story always ends with, there is not a sense of hope for humanity running throughout this movie. And essentially, Russell Crowe's Noah is this anti-human figure who thinks that what God is asking for him is to eradicate all of humanity, including his own family, and that they should be the last, and that his youngest child will die, and that will be the end, and the Earth will continue without humans. And, And Aronofsky sort of seems to be getting behind that, in a way, as a philosophical principle. So I guess I would say that in spite of the long, ludicrous stretches that impressed me enough that I'm glad this movie exists.
0: Yeah, I had a similar response, which is that I'm glad I saw the movie, although I sympathized with the nine-year-old who walked out ahead of me saying that was the longest, boringest movie I ever saw. (laughs) The movie is unwieldy. Um, Who takes
2: their nine-year-old to that movie also? There were
0: so many kids in my screening and also so many people looking at things on their phone, which may also be a testament to that it felt like the longest, boringest movie that some people ever saw. But I think A.O. Scott had a line in his review that the most radical thing about the movie is its sincerity, and I thought that was really apt, that, that it really does seem to be puzzling through the question of, what it meant for God to want to eradicate all of mankind and strains of this adaptation that play as an environmental parable for today. There's a class of very metropolitan, urban, mechanically, technologically inclined people who have robbed the earth of its resources and turned it into a barren, treeless wasteland, who now have turned upon each other and are eating babies and raping women in the street and totally reprehensible and have weird beards. And they all need to die so that Noah and his more normal noble beard can move forward
2: (laughs) or something. (laughs) But there's also several scenes of mourning for the innocents that are left behind. So there's a real question as to whether it is actually the worthy who have survived or just the most fanatical.
1: That's funny you should say that, Dana, because what I was going to say to Julia is that was precisely my problem with the movie was how stacked the deck appeared to me to be. I mean, it is a huge peculiarity that the two major religious traditions of the entire globe not only have a creation myth in which Adam and Eve are placed in you know the Garden of Eden and they taste of the fruit of knowledge and are fallen and uh, must be redeemed and on and on and on. Oh, well, if you're a Christian, you believe that they are eventually redeemed. If you're uh, Jewish, you don't. But anyway, whatever. Um, but that, as an add-on to that, the entirety of their progeny is completely tabularized by God, right? With the exception of this one family grouping, and the Noah story really, in that sense, is extraordinary. And I thought it would have made a much more interesting film. Even in Hollywood terms, if you had felt more strongly that, in fact, what humanity had created was, by humanity's terms, quite beautiful and enchanting and advanced and industrial, and instead it's this kind of post-apocalyptic mad—I mean, like, literally, they've created a hell on Earth, and we deserve these floods to come—you make a much more intensely Old Testament— and you know, pardon the phrase, existential movie. If you put Noah in the in the situation of Abraham, which is getting a um, a direct order from God to do something that, by the standards of by human standards, seems completely irrational, it seems to be evidence only of the most jealous creator, an awful creator. And um, you know, this is this is the nature of the Old Testament. It's the nature of Job. It's the nature of Abraham being told to kill his uh, his son. I thought the deck was so stacked, you couldn't wait for the flood to come along and completely wipe uh, the face of the earth clean. And then the other thing I'll say is I didn't like the movie at all as a a film uh, on any level. And there was an old Dennis Leary routine that he used to do on MTV where he said, get on the bus. He would tell some incredibly pompous rock celebrity like Michael Stipe to just go get on the bus next to Guns N' Roses and shut the F up, right? I just sat there and I was like, look, this movie was made for what, a buck 40, right? I mean, this movie's made for $140 million or something. What would happen if you took away $138 million of it, I mean, get on the bus with Land of the Lost. I mean, it, you know, those rock monsters were nothing more than sleestacks by another name. I mean, the, the story of Noah is powerful, but short. It's bereft of many details, and to plump it up into a two and a half hour Hollywood epic, you have to put in a lot of nonsense. I found the movie completely exa- exhausting, and I was done with it after fifteen minutes.
0: I, the Rock Monsters are ludicrous. I mean,
2: Wait, we, need to, we need to establish for people who haven't seen it a little bit what the Rock yes, Monsters. Yes, okay, sorry. Are. So, so the notion
0: is that there are also these fallen angels who take the form of rock monsters who at one point helped the descendants of Cain build their industrial society, but then they saw how the descendants of Cain were robbing the land, and so they retreated. Uh, and eventually they befriend Noah and decide to help him build the ark. In fact, Noah and his family don't have to do bupkis on this ark building. These rock <laughs> monsters just like slap it together. I also kept wanting someone to use the line, I think we're going to need a bigger boat. It just seemed like the <laughs> like the opportunity was there. It was clearly not, the movie did not have much levity in it except for one weird subplot where Anthony Hopkins' Methuselah seemed to be amusingly obsessed with berries. But anyway, I wanted that line in the movie. So, So the rock monsters exist. There is not much biblical precedent for this. There's a brief line, I think, that says something like, and giants walked along the land or, you know, there's there's a notion of giants. The giants become sort of transformer, prehistoric transformer style rock monsters. Who also
2: provide free slave labor and don't mind being washed away by the flood themselves. Or maybe they're just rocks and they'll just live at the bottom of the ocean. And well, then don't pop they, up they again? fly
1: up into angelic
2: Oh, that's uh, right. The they de-encrust
1: themselves from yeah. their rock
2: bodies. Yeah, rays of <laughs> lava, shoot. Anyway, that, that part is ludicrous. And but, it felt but, like, that felt like a concession to Hollywood, mm-hmm. to me. I mean, I know that the, the the screenwriter Ari Handel and Darren Aronofsky developed this idea together from that giant's line in in scripture. But it, it did feel to me very Transformers-y, the way that they were, you know, just these sort of big mechanical grunting helpmates. And the fact that they were voiced by, what was it? Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte and uh, another one was Frank Langella. You couldn't really tell. I mean, they just sounded like processed monsters to me. At the end, I saw that they had character names, and I was cracking up because I had no sense of them having any individualized (laughs) individualized characters at all. It was
0: all Og, Voice of Og. One had like a slightly more crooked face or something. But back to your point, Steve, about the how the movie would have been strengthened if it had had more ambiguity. I think that's really true. And I think if the human society that was being obliterated had been made more appealing and beautiful, that would have strengthened the movie. I also felt it was an incredible, unspeakable weakness. for a $140 million Hollywood movie to tell the story of Noah's Ark and do such a shitty job with the animals.
2: Hear, hear. The yes, let talk about the animals. I mean,
0: this movie basically should have just been like winged migration. Like they should have gotten the people who did the Blue Earth series to film actual animals. To I mean, the whole point of it, the whole question is, is God's creation more perfect with or without human intervention? So it seems mm-hmm. like you need to spend some time appreciating the beauty and wonder of God's creation. And the only animal we really see up close is like a weird feathered dog who perishes early on in the film, who is not a creature that exists in the world today. So the CGI-ness of it is more acceptable because it's not something you're familiar with. You're not like, oh, that doesn't look like my feathered dog. And then when the animals enter the ark, you see them in big swarms and flurries and rushing movement. I mean, they're almost like water themselves. They come kind of in cascading streams into the ark. You don't spot individual ones. There's one moment where like an elephant-esque animal falls into hibernation with a little child's book type smile on its face. But apart from that, you don't have any sense of the pairs of animals as individuals or of their specific beauty.
2: Jennifer Connelly, who plays Noah's wife, puts them all to sleep with this magical smoke sensor that I guess (laughs) exists in the past where you can just walk through the the hold of the ship swaying this church-like sensor and all the animals cozily fall asleep for the rest of the movie. I completely agree. I actually was sort of thrilled by some of those scenes where they streamed onto the Ark, especially when the snakes all come and they're all kind of, people are freaked out that they have to transport all these serpents. But yeah, once they get on the Ark, there is nothing done with them. It literally is, is as if the screenwriter just decided to shut them down so we don't have to worry about animating them uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, there just could have been so much more drama there. I mean, that was another charming moment in the movie was when the snakes all come, Jennifer, first the birds come and everyone's like, oh, birds, beautiful flight, hooray. Although you, it you starts on a photo of, like, two doves plonching about a stream in the way that you would expect egrets to. I mean, it, it set off some, like, bad birding tells <laughs> Ornithological
2: bad juju. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, and then flying, it's like, I saw winged migration. I know what it looks like to be in the guy behind a bird, somewhat miraculously, because film has moved to the point where we can actually shoot that, and those birds look terrible. So the birds come first, charmingly, and then the snakes come, and Jennifer Connelly is like ooh, the snakes are coming too and it's like a little bit of a funny Right, snake. like do we have
2: to embrace God's creation to this degree? But like that
0: would have been nice. Like uh, some of God's, crea- if there had been ambivalence about God's Insects, creation right. as well. Were The bugs mm-hmm. or, or if we'd shown mm-hmm. some of the animals fighting or scrapping with each other a- and some of the brutality and violence there. I mean, it is a genuine question. Like is human just another animal who would dominates the food chain. Which is a
2: question the movie asks at the beginning. In the first 20 minutes, there's a lot of talk about the animals are innocent and we have to protect the animals and they're vegetarians. There's a part of this movie that's sort of a brief for vegetarianism with this idea that if you eat meat, you know, you're going to become like the evil descendants of Cain. Yeah, all that was a lost opportunity, as was the opportunity to create an alternate bestiary. You know, if you're going to imagine the feathered dog at the beginning, I mean, you could have put all kinds of crazy imaginary animals on the ark, and it could have been wonderful and whimsical, but that was all.
0: Yeah, and I read somewhere that they didn't use any animals in in the filming of the movie. Movie, which I think may have been part of a contributor to how shoddy the CGI looked. And I wondered if it was like a philosophical choice that you couldn't make a movie about how important it was not to exploit the earth for its animals and then in the making of that movie exploit the earth's animals in an effort to make the movie seem really beautiful and sell a lot of popcorn. Right,
1: and suffer a PR disaster if one of them dies in the filming of the But of
0: the whatever, movie. you know, whatever. I would have rather had that hypocrisy in a better movie myself. I'm sure Petto would not agree
1: Right. You, you don't have to talk the audience into asking a philosophical question it's not already asking. We're already asking ourselves, what have we done to fuck up the creation? What have we done with this, the common legacy from which we emerge as beings, right? I mean, it's like we, we're all wondering what the fuck is going to happen to this planet and whether we have squandered I mean, it's you can't even describe it in objective terms. It's not that the Earth is beautiful. It's that the Earth is us, and that's reciprocally true. Like, we have no existence apart from that, right? And it's what we're going to do to squander our own self as beings in a natural world is at some level on everyone's mind, even those people who would deny global warming, but also have maybe perhaps profound religious leanings you know that incline them to believe that the story has a literal truth to it i mean there's just no one you can't put on the edge of their seat if you ask the questions properly and part of the problem is you made Russell Crowe inhuman. You made him too much a creature in some ways of the Old Testament.
2: But I respect that about this movie. I respect, you just said that it wasn't, it wasn't Old Testament enough. I mean, I actually sort of respect that Russell Crowe is a thoroughly unlikable, possibly insane patriarch of the future. I think that
1: that's the role that God plays in the Old Testament. And to make this moving at all, I think at least Russell Crowe needs to be baffled. He can't just be the human stand-in for a jealous, capricious, Old Testament God. I think he has to be baffled. He has to... I mean, I I can't demand Darren Aronofsky make the movie that I would make. That's preposterous. But I can only tell you why I didn't like this film. And I would have responded to a kind of wry humor on the part of Russell Crowe who just decides that it's his duty to enact God's will on earth, even though to him as a human being it makes no sense. And that puts us in the position of Russell Crowe. Like there, You form a sympathy with the audience because we feel as though we live in a world governed by a completely capricious and arbitrary and jealous God very often, which is why that has universal power, that literature, whether you're a believer or a non-believer. It's amazing to me that that opportunity was squandered.
2: Wait, as long as we're talking about the original source, I just also have to object to the depiction of the Garden of Eden, which we see at several different points while Russell Crowe's telling the story when Noah tells the story to his family and other moments including a really cool I thought kind of montage of evolution that sort of shows life evolving from you know one-celled animals to, to humans that was all really cool but when we flash back to the Garden of Eden did it bother you guys that Adam and Eve basically look like illustrations from a a Christian Bible of the 50s or something. They're these Mm. two glowing white people. They're just like these (laughs) glowing white, slender movie stars, you know, reaching for glowing apples. It just seemed like if there was going to be any attempt at all to show...
1: That was Nick Nolte and Frank Langelli.
2: (laughs) Run through a CGI filter. I thought that
1: was a beautiful nod to where we've come as a culture on gay marriage. I, thought it was
2: <laughs> I just, I could not believe that there were two just glowing alabaster Adam and Eve's. I mean, if, if you're going to follow the, the cell developing, you know, into life, then just like show humanity originating in Africa or show, I don't know, something like Neanderthals holding hands. It's just just the fact that they were these two actors just seems so fakey
1: to me. I know, ridiculous. All right. Can I get a witness? Have we slagged on this movie enough? Can we move on?
0: I think it's been about 40 days and 40 nights, so. (laughs) I think
1: so. All right. Well, the movie is Noah. We didn't like it. It's directed by Darren Aronofsky. It stars uh, Russell Crowe and uh, Jennifer Connelly. You should go see it. If you think we're completely wrong, come and slag on us for 40 days and 40 nights. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
0: It is indeed, Steve. Our sponsor this week is Stamps.com. Do you think that Noah considered just shipping all the animals to the future? Like what if he had just airmailed them? He'd like put them all in crates and then they were just like hovering in FedEx planes. But he didn't have
2: a home digital scale, did he? <laughs>
0: If Noah had had Stamps.com, he could have saved himself a whole lot of trouble, not built an ark and just shipped everything to the post-flood time. When you think about the best time to go to the post office, you're probably guessing that it is before your work building the ark, after your work building the ark, or maybe when you're taking a lunch break from building the ark. But you are wrong. Those times are when the post office is most crowded because everybody's going at that time, which means the truth is that there's no convenient time to go to the post office. That is why you... Noah and all the biblical patriarchs need stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can access all the surfaces of the post office right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer, and then just hand it to your mail carrier. So easy. And unlike the post office, stamps.com is open 24 7 with no lines. Right now, you can use our promo code CULTUREFEST. For this special offer, getting a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 worth of free Postage. Again, that promo code is CULTUREFEST. It has come to our attention that the listeners of other Slate podcasts are signing up for Stamps.com in greater numbers than you are, or perhaps you are the same and you've decided to give your allegiance to the Political Gab Fest or another show. Why would you do that? Surely the CULTUREFEST listeners have fascinating small businesses to run and tchotchkes to send one another and far-flung friends baked goods to exchange. Surely you have the need for stamps.com any sensible person does. So for all the details of the special offer and to sign up today go to stamps.com and before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in culturefest. That's stamps.com enter culturefest. All right Steve what's next?
1: All right, well, moving on. Doll and M is a British comedy import now airing on HBO in a six-episode run. It might better be called a meta-comedy as it stars Emily Mortimer as a movie star named Emily Mortimer and Dolly Wells as her best friend named Dolly Wells. You get the picture. After a miserable breakup, Dolly goes to work as Emily's personal assistant and one unfolds as a kind of queasy verite exercise in is what I'm watching real or a lark. Why don't we listen to a clip? So what what does an assistant do? Like, do I make you breakfast?
0: No, no, you definitely
1: don't have to make breakfast. They have it there on the set every day.
2: Should I make coffee or get you coffee or tea or something? You'd have to get up too early. That's fine,
0: I don't mind that. Really, I don't need coffee. You sure?
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, I can tell you what what kind of coffee I like just in case there's a time in the day that, you know, it's just a lot, you know, that's just a lot, yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. Really easy.
2: Um so what else?
0: <clears throat> but tell them to make it really frothy. Really frothy latte. Frothy yeah. latte. Just ask for loads of frothy milk. Good, okay. Latte fros- frothy latte. Yeah, that's it. And then um three shots. Okay, okay. Latte, frothy latte, three shots. Okay, what else? Um in a medium sized cup
2: otherwise it gets too weak if it's in a big cup. A frothy latte three shots in a medium cup? Yeah. Okay, cool. And then do I wash your clothes or wash your... No. <laughs> no?
0: Oh, my God, that would be so creepy. <laughs> no, I've got a cleaning maybe that does that. This is like the depressing, uncertain lady version of Entourage. Or something like that, right? It's like Star brings friends to Hollywood, but instead of like strippers and pool parties and and fun, it's all just social awkwardness and, and and overly bright California sunshine laying bare people's emotional insecurities. I found it to be revealing and fascinating, but maybe not so compelling that I'm dying to watch the whole series. I watched the first two.
1: Mm. I made it a little further than that, for the record, but Dana, I'm very curious to know what you thought of it. Did you think it was uh, breaking new ground, or have you seen a lot of this before?
2: Right. Well, in many ways, it is not breaking new ground in a way that's somewhat disappointing. I mean, it it does continue in the vein of Entourage or so many other, I mean, name them, you know, satires, sort of mild satires of of Hollywood that also want you to sort of enjoy the pleasures and, and perks of the Vicarious lifestyle of someone in Hollywood. So it it has that element. It doesn't function as much on envy, as you say, the way Entourage does, as much as on a sort of cringe comedy. I guess I liked it more than I thought for how slight it is, but it is very, very slight. I just felt that it was a bit underwritten. I mean, I love that improvisation is used in the construction of stories, but I feel like a few things that we've talked about lately, including this and Broad City, the sketch comedy, which is also about two young women who are friends. There's a stage of writing that hasn't been completed yet. It, just, it feels like a draft being acted rather than an actual script.
1: Mm. All right. Well, let me, I'm going to cut, if it's all right, this baby in half. I'm going to tell you why I was inclined to detest the show and why I actually ended up quite liking it. Everything I hate about the show or potentially could hate about the show comes out in that second episode. So uh, Emily Mortimer is making a film. We go to the party that they throw right before shooting. is going to begin the next day. The super young self-important, but, you know, uh, completely disproportionately self-important young director gives a speech. I, all of that has that kind of, you know, you're fly on the wall in this world that we all kind of dream about as, a, a, you know, a showbiz-addled Americans. That's okay. I, I can kind of go with it. But anyway, you then get Susan Sarandon playing herself, right, which is probably going to be a staple of the show the way it was, you know, 25 years ago with Larry Sanders. Um, and uh, uh, she plays herself as this deluded self-centered imperious movie star and one is immediately supposed to think of Susan Sarandon or Sarandon however you pronounce it as this wonderful person because she's able to self-satire to that degree to me that has gone so stale I'm also just in general a little bit sick of Hollywood cannibalizing itself I don't need to see more footage of uh, of Hollywood stars being themselves when they're not really being themselves that said I like the show and the reason I like it is I believe in this friendship the friendship strikes me as completely convincing it's rooted in their own actual friendship and the dynamic that occurs between two very old friends one of whom becomes either very wealthy or very famous to me is utterly fascinating because it's happened to me now and one of my oldest and closest friends has become richer than god and all i can say is that is that even though these are english women and the last time i checked he and i are a couple you know dipshit white guys from america They are getting something very real about, you know, one person passes through this membrane and becomes fame and money in the modern world just turn someone, a commoner, into a completely uncommoner, into a completely different kind of being. It just is a fact of modern life. At the same time, you possess a unique status vis-a-vis another person, whether they become famous or rich or not if you're their oldest and closest friend and these people are virtually sisters and what happens when one of them passes through that membrane and what happens to that friendship and what happens to them as individuals to me actually is a subject of appropriate subject and a compelling subject for a comedy of manners and I think that they've nailed that part of it without overdoing it. I think it's not thickly written in a in a way Dana but I think it's sharply written and I really appreciated it for
2: Yeah that. I would agree with that. It, it is it is sharp but not thick. I would appreciate a little bit more thematic density maybe. It feels <laughs> a little bit low stakes whether, you know, Dahl and M's apparently still invulnerable friendship is going to suffer more slights each week or not. So I'm not exactly sure how this will take turns into bigger drama or or if it will.
0: Yeah, they they both
2: are oblivious to their own flaws in ways that
0: end up Causing them to make fools of themselves in various ways. I guess, in the and sense, be jerks.
2: In the sense that this does recall that what Will Paskin of Slate called "jerk TV" tradition, which includes Enlightened and and, and Veep, Julia Louis Dreyfus and Veep, and other kind of negative female characters. I, I, that, that's where I think the thick writing needs to come in. I mean, I just I don't think it's it's quite enough for us to feel this gentle bemused tolerance toward them. I feel like there needs to be more of a density of, of development in order for us to hate them satisfyingly and love them at the same time.
1: I disagree with you there, Dan. I think Emily Mortimer shouldn't be what Susan Sarandon is in that second episode, which is this bro- way too broadly written uh, caricature, and she shouldn't be Ricky Gervais in the in the original Office. She sh- shouldn't be this person for whom the you know discrepancy between how she perceives herself and how we and everyone else perceive her is massive, and that the comedy is generated from that. This is way subtler than that, but I think truer, which is that this is an essentially decent sensitive human being who now according to the dictates of hollywood is being treated like a miniature queen she's become and this does you know this does happen like people become imperial within their own pond and and they become conscious of how big the pond is as well. And it's going to change you. It may not warp you or destroy you in some huge Darren Aronofsky, bring on the floods of you know eternity way. But it, it will shift you and it will shift the most important relationships in your life. And it seemed to me exactly that subtlety of register, you know, the little Geiger counter that this show takes to these changes. It shouldn't be any broader. I'm glad that it's not a broad comedy.
0: I hear you on that. I think in a way what it's showcasing is the distance between one's current self and one's past selves and the oldness, the age of their friendship helps show that up, helps set that off, helps her realize the friction between her current self and her past self, the Emily Mortimer character. And that's part of what gives the show its interest.
2: And the chemistry between the two actresses really is amazing. They've known each other, I guess, since early childhood. There's a picture of them, a framed picture of the two of them in the bathtub together where they look to be about four years old. And I can only assume that it's not Photoshop and that they, you know, they really have known each other that long. It's also interesting that they look a lot alike, Dolly Wells and Emily Mortimer. And somebody comments at one one point early on in the show, you two could be sisters. You know, so the fact that they're these kind of physical doubles, but one of them has more fame and success than the other. And, you know, that, that creates this rivalry between them is all just very interesting. There's also, as the series goes on, some romantic rivalries between them in moments where they're sort of vying for the same attention of the same man and all that stuff is, is just kind of good girl drama.
1: Let me take that as an occasion to point out the quickly the other thing that I love about the show, which is, it does seem to me a somewhat nuanced commentary on the winner-take-all society. These two... Young women grow up in England, virtually indistinguishable from one another they 're both middle class intelligent attractive white chicks and One of them just happens to have the right kind of talent or the right kind of look and she becomes she becomes famous and she suddenly the world uh rushes toward her in this bottomlessly affirming way, and it makes no such motion in the direction of the other and so we're meant to see that the sorority between them is intimate, but the gulf between them is also immense. And that's a social commentary. It's not just a personal commentary. It's something about what the world now does to recognize certain kinds of people and ignore others. And I, it just seems to me that, that, that that's hitting some interesting nail that I didn't quite know was there right on the head.
2: I'm interested that you liked it better than either of us, Steve. That's kind of cool.
1: All right. Well, the show is called Doll and M. It's on HBO. It's only a six episode run. It's not a big waste of your time. If you want to check it out, tell us what you thought of it. Come to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Our sponsor
0: this week, Steve, is audible.com, which is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio entertainment on the Internet. They have more than 150,000 titles of everything from classics to current bestsellers, and you can listen to these audiobooks on almost any device, including whatever it is you're using to listen to us right now. We have a special deal for our listeners. If you sign up through our show page for an Audible subscription, you can get a free monthly trial and one free audiobook. Uh, We also have been collecting here the Slate Culture Gab Fest bucket list. This is Steve, Julia, and Dana's list of books that you simply must read before you die to be a cultured person on this earth. They're the books that we would collect and put in our own personal culture arc to survive the flood and the deluge. Um, We've had a bunch of great recommendations so far, and I think Steve has one for us this week. Steve, what is it?
1: I do have one. Um, So I think probably a fair portion of our fans of or familiar with at least the works of Alice Munro and Deborah Eisenberg, two modern mistresses of the short story form. But for Eudora Welty, I don't think we would have either one of those women. Um, Eudora Welty is one of the great short story writers of all time. Uh, Some of her short stories make me swoon so hard, I'm not sure I'll ever get back up off of the Off of my fainting couch, she just was an extraordinary uh, short story writer. I mean, maybe one of the greatest this country's ever produced. And, of course, uh, many of them appeared in The New Yorker. If you go to audible.com, you will discover not the selected, my friends. No, no, no. The collected stories of Eudora Welty clocking in at 32 hours and 18 minutes. That's right. You can drive from Newark, New Jersey to the outskirts of Los Angeles without ever not hearing a portion of a Eudora Welty short story. My all-time favorite one is No Place for You, My Love, which you should read. And if you get to the end and your heart doesn't cleave, then you are a gleaming tower of inhumanity and can go sit next to Julia Turner and trade notes. But it's such a fantastic, uh, it's just an incredible story. She's incredible. A variety of people read them in this instance, so you won't get bored. Check it out, Eudora Welty, The Collected Stories of Eudora Welty.
0: That sounds wonderful, Steve. I'm I'm glad we're adding Eudora, old Eudora, to the bucket list. I actually like Eudora Welty's stories. But I'm not sure you can hear me glug glug glugging from the bottom of the flood that has crushed me and <laughs> my kind.
1: You know what that is? That's a you know what that is? That's an AI charade that you pull in order to convince people that you're not a machine.
0: Anyway. Listeners who would like to enjoy this book or some of the other ones we've recommended, or any of the one more than one hundred and fifty thousand titles at Audible, should check out our deal. Go to audiblepodcast dot com slash culturefest, and you can sign up for a free monthly trial. Get a free audiobook. Listen to Eudora Welty all the way to Los Angeles, then then play it again on the way home. Again, that's audiblepodcast dot com slash culturefest. All right, Steve, what's our third topic?
1: All right. Well, moving on. When Sarah Bunting and Tara Ariano started dissecting episodes of Dawson's Creek Online back in the 1990s, they probably did not have a revolution in mind. The resultant website, which eventually became known as Television Without Pity, has popularized the recap, a fanboy and fangirl format now deployed across the Internet and elsewhere. The revolution they affected has uh, been so successful to the point that when it was announced this past week that the site was going dark... New York Magazine decried the disappearance of not only the website, but the archives as well, as a weird spiritual crime against pop culture. Dana, uh, other than myself being a weird spiritual crime against pop culture, I don't have, I must admit, much of a connection to this topic, though I did find the New York, I want to say... Very clearly. I thought the New York Magazine uh, post written about it was beautifully written. But anyway, I don't have much of a connection to this topic other than your enthusiasm for it. So I'd love it if you took it from here and tell us what the website meant to you and what it's going away means to you.
2: I guess seeing that Television Without Pity is over, it's being shuttered, and its archives are, for the most part, disappearing into the ether, just made me feel sort of nostalgic and sort of old, because it kept on being paraded that this was an example of Web 1.0, whatever that means. I don't know when when the web started or when we were, we're at Web 0 exactly, but I guess Web 1.0 is something I'm also a relic of. And at the time that this blog was starting to take off and get big, or blog would not be the word for it, this site... I had my own personal blog, as you know, many of my friends who are now professional writers did. And it was just sort of a, I don't know, what I think of as sort of a fun guerrilla period of self-publishing when it was actually sort of possible to get read as a self-published person, which is exactly what Tara Ariano and Sarah Bunting did, obviously, sort of turned their own fan obsessions into this, this huge, rich archive of, of television arcana. And that really is what it used to be. I mean, I sort of think of it less as a recap site than as a a place for people to stretch their writing into crazy directions. And when you got somebody on Television Without Pity who recapped a show well, you could enjoy and love those recaps completely independently of whether you cared anything about the show. But Just because that person was pursuing you know, their their own obsessions and really having room to stretch, their recaps were absurdly long, pages after pages after pages. It would be, I don't know, a couple of thousand, maybe 3,000 words sometimes on a you were, single episode. It was episode.
0: often 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 pages that you had to click next and then wait for it to load at... 2001 internet speeds.
2: And you had to wait a few days for them to appear, too. Remember, there'd be the mini recap right after the show aired. There'd be a couple paragraphs, and essentially the person was putting in a placeholder saying i'm working on it i'm working on it and then you'd sort of wait for them to take their time it would never happen now that you would wait you know up to i don't know 4 days a week and, until the next show was about to air before you would read the the recaps in particular i remember this woman Alex Richmond i have no idea what else she's written since then or what happened to her but she recapped sex in the city for television without pity not a show that i was particularly connected to at the time i watched it occasionally i sort of hate watched it but man her recaps were hilarious they just had their own voice they were dead on they got exactly what was ridiculous and also what was wonderful about the show and they were so much fun to read. So the fact that that stuff is disappearing in a way makes me the saddest of all. I don't really care whether Television Without Pity continues to exist because it's not what it used to be. The creators have left and there's recaps everywhere. So that has long been dead. But the, the, the idea that we're sort of eating our own internet culture in this way and that NBC Universal, which owns the site, gets to decide what happens to all the archives, that makes me worry about the preservation of culture in the internet era.
0: Yeah. It struck me reading about the demise of the site, which I also have fond memories of, that the Museum of Television and Radio or the Paley Center, or maybe those two things have merged. To one these days, but th- that some cultural entity devoted to the preservation of television should inveigle NBC Universal get those archives and preserve them. It is a, it's in terms of kind of the evolution of internet vernacular television criticism. It's a huge treasure trove of gems and a real turning point, I think, in how the internet enabled us to enact with culture, and particularly television culture, in new and fresh ways. I do think also, I mean, it sounds like for you, it was more a place to enjoy interesting writers doing interesting things, but it really did spawn recap culture, and recap culture has completely changed the way that we all write about and think about and talk about television.
1: All right. Well, explain a little bit to someone who's not a descendant of television without pity. What is the appeal of the recap? I mean, this is. This is really to start with, you know, reinventing the wheel. But, you know, I don't watch a ton of television. I don't watch it obsessively. I love The Wire. I love, you know, there are four or five shows that I might have clicked on and and participated in something like this or read it with avidity. But very few. Why has this become such a big thing? I don't understand it. Is it generational? Old fuck like me can't possibly make any sense of it.
0: Well, I think there's a couple factors in play here. One, I think, does have to do with the time Shiftiness of television these days. The friend who turned me on to television without pity back when it was still called Mighty Big TV is also my first friend with a TiVo. So it was the the avant-garde of television watchers who were moving towards this new way of television that in my life at least led me to find this community. And, you know, she would watch shows whenever she wanted to because they were time shifted, which seemed hugely novel at the time because we didn't all have DVRs. Um, And then once you watched it at your time shifted time, you could go onto the Internet and find a whole other community of people who had also watched it. So instead of watching the show when it aired on broadcast and then chatting about it with your friends on your couch or, you know, in the classic water cooler moment the next morning because everybody watched the New Heart finale or whatever at the office you could find this online instead and find maybe nobody at your office liked Buffy the Vampire Slayer but a ton of people online did and you could go on there and and check out what other interesting smart people had to say about it both the recappers and then the many many commenters on each recap um, and there are a couple different modes, too, right I mean sometimes it 's sort of a hate watch where everybody 's making fun of all the plot turns and how exasperating the show has gotten sometimes it 's an analytical geek out, so for example, with True Detective, as the mystery got thicker and deeper, the recappers were parsing out different possible theories and what might have happened. For me, Mad Men is still fun to recap because Matthew Weiner likes to play a cat and mouse game with all of us where he studs the show with interesting historical references that you can kind of Google or explicate for the audience a little bit. And there's material there to offer kind of analytical theories about in a way that there isn't necessarily in Gossip Girl. And sometimes they're just kind of gossipy, like pretending that the characters on Scandal are your friends and you can't believe that she slept with that guy or that he killed that guy is more likely on that show since everybody's always dying in spatters of blood. Um, so there's, there's more modes. I'm probably missing other modes besides that, Dana. But... Yeah,
2: I mean, I just feel like the recap has gone so far from what it was when Television Without Pity started it. I mean, one of the reasons that it was it was fun to go and read the stuff on that site is that it was a novelty. It wasn't anywhere else. There was something funny about the idea that you could dive so deep into one episode of a TV show. Now, of course, that's happening everywhere, including in real time on social media. And so the need for a site like that is obviated. But I also think some of the fun of it is obviated. I mean, I'm not going to say there aren't great recappers out there and that there's not some something about recapping culture that could be interesting but it seems so universal to me now that I feel sort of the sense of exhaustion after, you know, a big finale for True Detective or something like that. It just feels like there's an infinitude of, of commentary out there and it's sort of impossible to filter through. Some of it's boring, some of it's not. I don't know. I don't necessarily see the need for every show to be painstakingly recapped unless there's a specific voice to the recapper. I remember, I'll never forget the season of American Idol, which I'd never watch a minute of, when Paul F. Tompkins, the comedian, recapped American Idol for some reason for Vulture. It was fantastic. So when you get the right match, of a voice and a show or a mismatch like that that's so extreme that it becomes funny, then then there's something wonderful in it. But just this kind of need to just go over the TV of the previous night seems to me at this point a little bit overwhelming.
1: All right. So clearly what's needed is a recap site for recaps.
2: There is that that exists already.
1: Vulture does uh, that. No, oh, no. <laughs> Thank I you. call down the floodwaters. <laughs>
2: well, that's that's useful for me. Actually, I'll throw it out to listeners. If people want to point me to somebody who's just a brilliant recapper of any show, who you would want to read just for the strength of their own writing and their own funny relationship to to that show, I would I would love to follow them.
0: Yes, person. I agree. Please post those to the Facebook page.
1: All right. Well, the piece that got us interested in, in addition to Dana's passion for the website was uh, How Television Without Pity Shaped Pop Culture by Margaret Lyons. I think it's a great recap of what that website was. Check it out. All right. Well, now's the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have?
2: My endorsement is actually related to the Television Without Pity conversation. I was tweeting yesterday about the sadness of Television Without Pity's archives disappearing in particular. And I actually posted uh, a link to those Alex Richmond Sex and the City recaps and was saying, it's so sad that these are going to disappear. Everyone go read them while you can. And uh, And somebody popped up and said, you know, if you feel that way, you should donate to the Wayback Machine, which was a very good piece of advice. And I think I'm going to do that. And I want to endorse that our listeners do that as well. So the Wayback Machine is this vast attempt to preserve Internet culture and to preserve the Internet. And I think insofar as it's able to do so, you know, in, in terms of, of rights, with whatever organizations own the material, it tries to just keep everything that's ever existed on the internet, or actually even before. There's some old radio programs and things on there from you know pre-television days. Even it's a place that essentially popular culture is is being preserved, and uh, and it's a nonprofit that you can donate to. And if you go to archive.org, you can find your way around their vast labyrinthine, amazing archives, and also see a place to donate. And I particularly recommend exploring the the old radio. Actually, is really fun. When you're done looking at television without pity archives which will take you a thousand millennia, then you can go over and listen to things like The Shadow Nose, you know, or the the Orson Welles' War of the Worlds and old old radio. It's all just really, really fun to to dive into and never come out again.
1: Oh, that is cool. Um, All right, Julia Turner, what do you have?
0: Well, because I'm a Philistine robot at the bottom of a vast turning sea, I will recommend for people who don't want a subtle emotional take on the moral depredations of Hollywood and fame... A slightly zingier, poppier, broader version of the show, which is episodes on Showtime. Did we discuss episodes on the show?
2: Is that the Ricky Gervais Hollywood? No, no.
0: It's the one that stars Matt LeBlanc as Matt LeBlanc and a British couple of screenwriters who come to Hollywood to write a show that stars him and get completely flummoxed and corrupted and but befuddled by Hollywood in all its ways in the process. And it's been on Showtime for a couple of seasons. And I'm not a completist of the show, but I find it very charming. And it's, it plays at similar angles of British people arrive in sunny L.A. and hastily try to live moral lives with only modest success. But it has a lot of verve and some great supporting performances. So I recommend that people check it out. That's episodes on Showtime.
1: Mm. That's cool. All right. Well, so,
2: <laughs> that was not convincing. I, have, I, I,
1: I, I am going to boot that up as soon as we finish recording. Julia, trust me, Ugh, you geez. sold me.
2: Cause he misses Joey Tribbiani so much. Huh. It's good. Matt LeBlanc is really good. God damn it. <laughs>
1: do Chandler and Ross come on the show too?
0: I, as I say, I'm not a completist.
1: Have you ever hated me more than you do right now? <laughs>
0: I'm impressed that you know the names of Chandler and Ross. Those are the, really their character <laughs> names. Who played them, Steve? How much Friends have you watched?
1: My my labradoodle just prompted me.
0: What did you think? What did you uh, What did you think about this season of The Bachelor? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: you know what? I'm actually going to have to. Uh, binge watch it oh.
2: it's true Steve has no cred at all for sort of like insults of other people's lowbrow watching <laughs> you just crank up The Bachelor every time <sighs> uh,
1: feel the burn okay so it's uh, uh, you know I'm not giving away any huge trade secrets here but we do pre-record the show it's April Fool's Day I'm going to endorse a song I heard this morning on the radio completely randomly. Never heard it before. It's, it's from Young, Gifted, and Black by Aretha Franklin, the transcendent album. But I just don't remember this cut. It's called April Fool's. I believe it's written by Burt Bacharach. And it's classic Bacharach and classic Aretha Franklin. It's an amazing, amazing song. And I'm going to quickly additionally say that on the airplane, I finally caught 20 Feet from Stardom, which I thought was tremendous. It was very, very good. Uh, and I think that's our show. Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Julia, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Steve.
1: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culture And you can email us at culture at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culture <laughs> I'm laughing at how fucking awful and dismissive my voice was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's coming back to me now after your <laughs> endorsement. It was that was the worst it ever was. Yeah,
2: that, that's cool. It has
0: some, com- <laughs> it has some competition, Steve.
1: <laughs> it really was a, i couldn't give a smaller shit if you <sighs> reduced me down a million times and yeah anyway okay moving on
0: i want our listeners who actually watch that show to weigh in on the show page and 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 tell steve why it's good So try and actually
1: persuade him to give a shit about episodes
2: it's genuinely <laughs> a good oh show God. matt leblanc has had his keyboard right now typing furiously <laughs>
1: <laughs> I surpassed myself. Okay. Our producer is Anne Hepperman. Our intern is uh, Anna Schechtman. The executive producer of Slate Podcast, of course, is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner and Matt LeBlanc, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you soon.
0: And hopefully in Montreal. Don't forget to buy tickets. Billy Slate, Coon, baby. Slate.com slash live. In an April dream Once you I'm true.